A year or so ago, I saw a tweet from a Twitter user named Monterey Jack, and it said, Hey Twitter, just a friendly reminder that Venthaven is a real place that exists, a museum where ventriloquists have donated their dummies after they've died. Look at this place. You'd not stop screaming from the moment you walked through the door. Thank you. So this is true. Venthaven is a museum that exists, a museum for ventriloquist dummies. I haven't been there, but there are plenty of pictures online. And of course they are not presenting this as a horror exhibit, but more a celebration of the art form and a place to preserve the dummies that have likely over the years given people a lot of pleasure. It's a bright and welcoming place that is dedicated to allowing these dummies to carry on entertaining long after their original owners have passed. And looking at the array of dummies there, you can't help but wonder about the stories behind them. For each dummy that exists, there are stories of the craftsman who made them and a performer who gave them life. Some of these performers may have hit the heights of fame like Edgar Bergen in the US or Ray Allen in the UK, but others toiled in relative obscurity in the lower end venues trying to reach those heights. Every dummy holds the story of a life or even multiple lives. So it's easy to talk about a place like Venthaven with a modern sardonic eye and tweet about it in mock terror. But the truth is, this melding of performer and dummy, which is there to entertain and make people happy, has still captured a dark part of our imagination. Perhaps it's because it's an art form that has existed for hundreds of years before the television and stage ventriloquists we know today, and it has always had a darkness to it. In his book, Dumbstruck, A Cultural History of Ventriloquism, the writer Stephen Connor dates ventriloquism back to at least classical Greece. And then, ventriloquists were known as engastromits, which derives from en, which means in, and gaster, which means stomach, and mythos or speech. So basically people believed that engastromiths had demons in their stomachs who forced words from their hosts' mouths. But there are also links to necromancy, the ancient belief that the spirits of the dead could enter the necromancer and then speak to the living. I'm sure that would go down well on America's Got Talent. But of course this was likely all just parlor tricks and perhaps included elements of ventriloquism in delivering disembodied and different voices. But for real nightmare fuel, let's talk about Alexander Avabonatekis, who in 150 AD discovered a talking serpent with a human head, 
who would talk to its audience. And it was later discovered that the head was made of linen and mounted upon a snake's body. And the speech came through a tube operated by an assistant. So not ventriloquism per se, but certainly an example of a dark use of a dummy. During the Reformation in England, a nun named Elizabeth Barton was well known for her ventriloquist skills. But when her disembodied voice uttered that King Henry VIII shouldn't marry Anne Boleyn, she was hanged and King Henry was married. Of course, most modern audiences won't know of such things, so why since moving pictures have been made, have there been stories of evil ventriloquist dummies? Is it because the dummies themselves are at times grotesque facsimiles of human beings? Is it because the performer is revealing a side to themselves that would otherwise be hidden? Or is it that there are echoes of ancient folklorish evils, like demonic possession, a demon speaking through a person, or reanimation of the dead? Something, or someone, that lay dead and lifeless, suddenly being possessed by life. Jerry Etherson is one such person who has the gift of giving the inanimate life through ventriloquism with his dummy Willie, and they're about to take the stage. Ladies and gentlemen, we're certainly glad to be here tonight. Speak for yourself, Turkey. That's Jerry. Every dummy do his own taste. <laughs> now cut that out. All right, all right, let go of the suit. I'm getting out of here. Now wait a minute, wait a minute now, Willie. Just stay right here. Mm-hmm. I mean it. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry if I said anything. I, uh, I, I didn't mean it. Oh, no? No. No? No. Just tell me this, wise guy. You did admit that you were superstitious now, didn't you? Well, on occasion, yes. But you don't throw salt over your shoulders or cross your fingers or anything like that. No, I knock on wood. Well, you did it again! Wait a minute, no, wait a minute. I resign. From now on, I'm a single. As for you, you can turn in your lap! (laughs) So tonight we're going to walk through a doorway into one of the more out-of-the-way bistros which on the surface looks like any other. And as we walk to our table, we'll look at the playbill for tonight and notice that it's not just the talents of Jerry Etherson and Willie on the bill, but perhaps some other performers will take the stage as well to help us ponder the question of why these props of mirth and laughter have a reputation for evil and madness. And as we take our seat, we notice that the man next to us looks very familiar indeed, because this club lies on the outskirts of the Twilight Zone, and we're about to watch the dummy. You're watching a ventriloquist named Jerry Etherson, a voice thrower par excellence. His alter ego sitting atop his lap is a brass stick of kindling with the sobriquet Willie. In a moment, Mr. Etherson and his naughty pine partner will be booked into one of the out-of-the-way bistros, that small, dark, intimate place known as the Twilight Zone. 
first broadcast on May 4th, 1962, written by Rod Serling but based on an unpublished story by Lee Polk and directed by Abner Biberman. Now I have to admit that Rod Serling sitting in the audience satisfies my Serling in the scene obsession like few other episodes can. Now a peak sailing in the scene is if he crosses paths with an actual character from the show. But what also ranks highly for me is if he is using the location in the way that it's meant to be used, like when he's reading the paper in the gentleman's club in the episode back there. So to have him sitting in the audience is just perfect. So the writer of the original story is a gentleman by the name of Lee Polk and he was a Twilight Zone fan and he worked for a radio station in New York and he submitted the idea to Rod Serling who was fascinated by it and decided to purchase the story and then he wrote the screenplay. Now unfortunately because it was never published I don't think it's out there in the public domain to make any comparisons. Our director Abner Biberman is a new director for The Twilight Zone and he'll stick around for four episodes in total. The Dummy, The Incredible World of Horace Ford, Number 12 Looks Just Like You and I'm the Night Color Me Black. And we've had Twilight Zone directors who have been actors before but sometimes they are weighted more towards one or the other. But with Abner Biberman, His acting credits are on par with his directing credits and just for good measure, he wrote a couple of scripts too, not for The Twilight Zone. An experienced pilot, he was a flight instructor training pilots in World War II and then he went on to success on the stage in several Broadway productions. When he hit the screen in 1936, his exotic looks meant that he was cast as any number of different ethnicities. And he worked steadily throughout the 40s and 50s and one of his most famous credits is in the Cary Grant film His Girl Friday. But then his career began to transition more towards directing in the 50s and 60s and he could crank them out. You know, 49 credits may not seem like a huge amount for a director of that time but he would often stick around on shows and direct multiple episodes of them shows like Ironside and Hawaii Five-0. And I think he really brings a great directing style to the Twilight Zone here. I think he understands how to use the black and white. I mean, I guess it was all he had at that point. But later on, at the end of the episode, you'll really see him start to come into his own in terms of some of the things he's trying on screen. But we'll come back to that in a moment. But here in the opening scenes, I especially like after the narration where there is this juxtaposition of some very eerie, foreboding music over Jerry doing his act and the laughter of the audience. But it's when they come off stage that the laughter stops. And there's a really effective scene here where Jerry is sitting at his dressing table, but every time we cut to Willie, his head is in a different position and Jerry is taking a drink of that Twilight Zone brand of whiskey, Golden Delight. And it's in this scene that we're introduced to Jerry's manager, Frank. I don't know why I waste my time. 
10% of you is grief, and it's always been that way. Well, listen, Jerry. It doesn't have to be this way. You give in to some bad hooch, and then you have bad nightmares. It's as simple as that. Take away the hooch, and you take away the nightmares. No, you got the chronology wrong, Frank. First the nightmares, and then the hooch. I drink because I have to. And I have to. Because I am. I gotta get rid of him, Frank. It's a stick of wood? This fugitive from a fireplace? Jerry, how many psychiatrists do you have to see? How many hours on the couch does it require? How many 20 buck an hour visits? I can't help it. You can't help it. You know what it is. You've been told. Often, endlessly, up to my craw and overflowing. Schizophrenia, I know it by heart. Patient feel helpless and manipulated by forces outside of his control. I can give it to you frontwards, backwards, Indian, out again, Finnegan, in three different languages. It's like a well-rehearsed off-color gag. Patient goes from himself to a lifeless dummy and then is unable to separate himself from the dummy. Oh, that's all very psychiatric and erudite and worth about two and a half bucks a word, but it's not right. It's not right! I told them that, I tell you that! It's no more schizophrenia or paranoia than his athlete's foot or a head cold. Well, he's alive! He's a dummy! Ah. He's a block of wood! Look at him! Does this thing look alive to you? Well, does he? Now, it's a credit to sailing that he actually acknowledges the basis of a lot of these ventriloquist-type movies in this scene. The ventriloquist who puts himself into the act so much that he can't separate himself from the dummy anymore. But Jerry says that that's not the case here, and this argument between Jerry and Frank, I think if you sit and listen to it through, the whole thing is peak sailing dialogue. There are a few sailingisms in there, but it sounds natural and true to the moment. And both Cliff Robertson as Jerry and Frank Sutton, who plays Frank, deliver it beautifully. So while Jerry and Frank argue out in the back, it's time for another act to take the stage. Well, don't be shy. You'll go. The lady won't bite you. No, but you know me. I might bite the lady. Tell me, my little lotus blossom, where have I been all your life? Comment? C'est pas un mot d'anglais, vous savez. One of the natives. Il est gentil. J'espère qu'il vous a pas manqué de respect. Didn't I see you working your head off in the Folie Berger? I'm sure I saw her in the Folie Berger. Oh, the lady's face is familiar, is it? What would I be doing in the Folly Berger, looking at faces? Hey, Maxwell, we don't have to wake these two up. Besides, I can read her thoughts. Read her thoughts? Why, Hugo, that's clairvoyance. Clairvoyance? Oh, good evening, Claire. <laughs> Maxwell, we must be a riot. First of tomorrow night's audience just came in. See what I mean? The dumb-looking one. Why, Hugo? He doesn't look any more dumb than I do. Don't ask the impossible. <laughs> Whenever the subject of evil ventriloquist dummies comes up, there is one film that is always mentioned. It is considered to be the granddaddy of them all, and that film is Dead of Night from 1945, a British film from Ealing Studios, and it is an anthology film with some connective tissue in the form of a wraparound story 
where various people in the house tell the others present about the strange things that they've been involved in. And we've actually visited this film before because one of the stories shares history with the Twilight Zone episode 22. Room for one more? But the final story of the film, and my favourite, is the ventriloquist dummy. And the ventriloquist in this case is called Maxwell Freer, and he's played brilliantly by Michael Redgrave. His dummy is called Hugo Fitch, and was supplied by a British ventriloquist called Arthur Bro, who also supplied the dummy's voice. Now this is often held up as being the first ventriloquist dummy movie, but that's not true because there were at least three before it, and probably more. The silent movie The Unholy Three from 1925 starred Lon Chaney, and then it had a talky remake five years later. And then in 1929, there's the movie The Great Gabbo. So there are probably more, but it's generally the ventriloquist from Dead of Night that people remember and quote when the subject comes up. Now at the time, it was considered quite creepy, and while time may have dulled those edges a touch, what still does hold up is the performance of Michael Redgrave as Maxwell Freer. And what Redgrave does so well in the relatively short time of this segment is to convey through his performance that the stronger the dummy gets, the more he just becomes an empty shell. And in this scene, he can even get stinking drunk, but the dummy is still as sharp as ever. Oh, Mr. Frere, I hoped you wouldn't mind, but he looks so cute. On your way, sister, on your way. Oh, aren't you a little devil? Come along now. Take your hands off me, will you? I'll punch your messy little face in. Say, Maxwell, this cheap bit of skirt's getting after me. You low, filthy drunk, you. I'll... Did you hear what this man called me? Oh, skip it, have a drink. Harry Parker, are you going to stand by and let this creature insult me? All right. Look here, old man, you better apologize to this lady. What did you say? I said you've insulted this lady, and I said you better apologize to her. I assure you, I haven't the slightest intention. Lady? <laughs> what lady? Maxwell, I don't see no lady. Look here. Are you going to apologize like a gentleman, or do I have to make you? Who does this guy think he is? Will you kick his teeth in, Maxwell, or shall I? <laughs> you asked for it. Now then, gentlemen, no fighting in here, please. Ah. Despite Dead of Night being quite a supernatural sounding film, and there being an element of the supernatural in some of the other stories, this one doesn't really play much upon the idea that Hugo moves about independently of Maxwell, although there are hints of it in the story, but it's more leaning on the psychological aspects of it. Is Hugo a dummy with a life of its own, or is it a part of Maxwell? manifesting in the behavior of the dummy, whether he wants it to or not. So spoilers if you haven't seen it, but the ending of this segment of Dead of Night is actually quite similar to our Twilight Zone episode, The Dummy. Each is a kind of riff on the same idea, 
but we'll come back to that later. So back in the club, what we get from the argument between Jerry and Frank is that Frank was of the opinion that Jerry really did have a shot at the top. But while this club may be nice, he should have moved on to bigger and better things by now, and Frank blames this on Jerry's drinking. But Jerry blames his misfortunes on Willie the Dummy, who he maintains is alive. And it's after this scene where we actually see Willie moving about on his own, not just when the camera isn't on him. But is that actually happening, or are we just given a glimpse into Jerry's psyche? So Jerry's plan going forward is to use his backup dummy, Goofy Goggles, and they're about to take the stage right now. Goofy? Goofy, I think it's uh, time you had your uh, glasses fixed. I, uh, I really do. My eyes are much better now. Goofy, you're talking to the band leader. I'm over here. <laughs> Keep talking. I'll find you. Uh, Goofy, I think you need your um, eyes tested. Eyes tested? That's right. Eyes tested. Well, I'm ready. All right. Here. Now, tell me what, uh, what that says. Where? <laughs> oh, that thing. How about a hint? Goofy, it's as clear as day. It's right in front of you. <laughs> Just give me a hint. Well, it's uh, a letter, and it's between D and F. I've got it. It's E. I don't know how you do it, Goofy. I cannot tell a lie. I memorized it. <laughs> now, the audience laughter that we hear when Jerry performs was actually recorded later on because they were going to use can laughter, but apparently it just didn't sound right. So they recorded the laughter and audience chit-chat in the sync room at the studio. So of course Jerry Etherson is played by Cliff Robertson and we've met him before in a hundred yards over the rim. And in unlocking the door to a television classic he says, I watched my good friend Edgar Bergen perform with Charlie McCarthy and Mortimer Snared so I could reproduce the mannerisms of a ventriloquist. I did my best but the craft of ventriloquism was an art form you could not reproduce overnight. I don't think I did it justice for puppeteers, but I did all the voices of the dummies. And he further recounts a spooky tale of his own. He said, I did two of those Twilight Zone episodes. I had a reservation on an American Airlines or Pan Am flight from New York to California for one of them. I believe it was the dummy. I was scheduled to arrive in Hollywood days before they really needed me. I rescheduled for a later flight and someone told me that I would get into trouble. But I just did not see any reason for flying in and waiting for my turn before the camera. I'm glad now that I did it because soon after that flight took off, the pilot had a heart attack and everyone perished. That episode of the Twilight Zone almost killed me. So as Cliff Robertson said, he actually did the voices for the dummies himself and I spoke last time about his bio, so I won't go into that further, but I do really love what he does in this episode. Now, although he was only in two episodes, I think this one really does put him in the top tier of Twilight Zone actors for me. 
he has a commitment to the part similar to someone like Jack Klugman that goes beyond him just turning up to play the part. I think there's a real authenticity to Cliff Robertson and he brings some great little touches to it as well, like the way he holds his lips when he performs and the movements of his throat. So as ventriloquism was a popular form of entertainment at the time, so too were these stories about the dummies and the people who brought them life. But what were the other shows doing at the time? Well, one of the other famous anthologies Alfred Hitchcock presents predated The Twilight Zone with a couple of dummy stories, and one from 1956 was called And So Died Rybaczynska. So why don't we sit back and watch the stars John Fabian and his dummy Rybaczynska right now. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. Maria Buczynska, have you anything to say to your audience? I think you are all wonderful. And have you anything to say to me? I think you're the most wonderful ventriloquist in the world. And... And what? I love you, Fabian. So as you heard, this act is a little unique in that it's a male ventriloquist played by the great Claude Rains, and he has a female dummy. And in the episode is a detective played by Charles Bronson, who visits the club where Fabian works to investigate the murder of a performer there. And of course, he soon becomes suspicious of Fabian. And it's a nice tight little story and it's a nice change to see a female dummy as well. And the dummy that's used isn't your usual caricature style of dummy, but rather a nicely crafted replica of a beautiful woman who actually looks quite lifelike from various angles, which plays into the story nicely. When we see the dummy lay down, she looks like a deceased woman and we find out that there is actually a missing person of the same name who used to be Fabian's assistant. So if we look at the ventriloquist dummy genre, it's usually the case that it's either the dummy is evil and has a life of its own, or it's a manifestation of some aspect of the ventriloquist. And it's no spoiler to say that in this case, it's certainly not an evil dummy and she isn't a manifestation of Fabian's insecurities like a lot of these stories are. But in this case, she tends to be a manifestation of his guilt. All right, so I knew him. That doesn't prove that I killed him. No, but it proves that you've been lying straight down the line. Look, Ockham's first letter came a month ago. No. I see, you won't talk, is that it, Fabian? But she will. Here. Make her talk. I think she'll tell the truth. There was only one Luke Ockham. And he was a juggler. And he had been on the same bill with Fabian and Sweet William at the Grand Theater in Chicago. And he remembered that once there had been a woman before there was a dummy. No. Let her talk. Yes. Yes, I must talk. 
I must tell the truth. No. And there is also another very chilling episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents called The Glass Eye, starring William Shatner and Jessica Tandy that is very good too. Now, I won't ruin the twist for you, although Zikri does in The Twilight Zone Companion, but some of the scenes in it really are quite creepy. Now, when Jerry comes off stage with Mr. Goofy Goggles, the performance seems to have gone well. The audience responded well and he seems to have a new sense of purpose. Now the club owner wants him to come out after the act is over and mix with the people who attend the club. And we do see that he can be quite personable when he wants to be. He flirts with the showgirls when he comes off stage and the smiles and the looks they give do suggest that they think he's attractive. So we do get a glimpse of Jerry how he could be and how he is when he wants to be. And he locks Willie away in a trunk in the hope that perhaps he can move on. I waited for you after the last show. Georgia was hoping you'd mix with a customer. You tell Georgia I'm a ventriloquist, not a shill. Why don't you tell him? What does that mean? That means I'm resigning from the club. You keep your 10% and I'll keep my self-respect. Also, my sense of humor, my regular meals, my normal working hours. You and I have had it, Jerry. I have gone the route and then some. You don't need an agent. You need medical help. I think it's reached that now. You never believed me, did you, Frank? Yeah, I believed you. I believed you had obsessions. I believe those obsessions are eating you up alive, but I also believe, Jerry, you're letting them. He talks when I don't talk. He tells jokes I never heard of before. Gives me bum cues. He's alive, Frank. That's why I locked him in that trunk. So Jerry's agent, Frank, was played by Frank Sutton, a tough-looking, bullish man who was one of our hard-working actors of the day. And he's perhaps best known for playing Sergeant Vince Carter in The Andy Griffiths Show and its spin-off Goma Pyle, in which he played a US Marine. But in real life, he couldn't actually pass the Marine Corps physical, so he ended up joining the army and took part in 14 assault landings. And I enjoy him in this, you know, it's a pretty straightforward part, but he wrestles with that sailing dialogue quite admirably during the argument scene and he has a sincerity to him where you really feel that he both cares for and is frustrated by Jerry. But he resigns from the club. If I have a criticism of the dummy, and it's not even a criticism to be honest, it's that it does feel quite short. Now, it is the same length as any other Twilight Zone in the season, but with a story like this where we're potentially watching the mental decline of a man, I do like to spend some time with a story like that and watch the gradual fraying of the threads of their sanity. But like I say, I don't think that's particularly a criticism of the dummy. Perhaps it's just a preference. So we may not get that here, but perhaps we'll get it when we take in our next act. Corky and Fats from the 1978 film Magic. You see the broad with the big jugs? You mean the uh, young lady in the feathers? Yeah, I see her. So on. 
Want to see like a roll in the shavings with me? I don't think you're very funny. Well, they do. Don't encourage him. I will now change a diamond into a heart. I guess the reason I'm such a great lover is, um... I want to hear about your sex life, if you don't mind. Tell us all about yours, then. Everybody likes short stories. Pick a diamond. Huh? I said pick a diamond. All right. You change into a heart while I'm holding it. Oh, go on, show the audience. If you're so great, change it while I'm holding it. You won't give it back to me? Well, that's another trick you ruined. Uh, let's see. I just have to think of something else. You mean you're not going to change my diamond? Hmm? Jesus Christ. What? It tanged into a heart while I was holding it. Two Golden Delight Whiskey, please. Magic is directed by Richard Attenborough and stars Anthony Hopkins as Corky, a man with little in the way of confidence or charisma. He's a failed stage magician who only finds success when he introduces a dummy into his act, a dummy by the name of Fats. And this is probably my favourite of all of these ventriloquist-themed shows and films, for a couple of reasons. First of all, it stars a young Anthony Hopkins, along Twilight Zone royalty, Burgess Meredith, and both of them are at the top of their game in this film. What's the matter? Getting your period? Feeling kind of blue. I miss the city bad. Well, the country grows in you. So does fungus. I told you once already we'd leave. When? When I want to, now drop it. Simmer the hell down! Just because... Watch it, mister! Just because some... You've been warned! Just because some sagging bitch of an orange in drops her pants for you! Shut up! Corky, you do it so good! You're even better than the garbage man! Ah! <sighs> hey, Ben. How do you like it? I, I think it's going to be terrific. What's with gang green? Blue Cross repossess your tongue? Come on in, shut up. Come on in, Ben. I'll do the whole routine for you. How the hell did you ever find me? You're amazing. I bet it was that kid cab driver. He must have called the office and found you. How long you been like this, kid? Like what? Oh, my God, you don't think that was for real? How do you think I rehearse? It's no good. It's for the act, for Christ's sakes! And watch now. Ladies and gentlemen, for your viewing pleasure, my version of the miser's dream. Was it a wet dream? Imagine, shut up. Imagine if you were. When I have a wet dream, all that happens is I wake up covered with sawdust. If you don't stop it interrupting, I'm going to put a contract out on you with a mafia woodpecker. Oh, what I wouldn't give for a woodpecker. Will you be quiet? Don't encourage him, ladies and gentlemen. It's merely a great beginning, isn't it, Ben? Is this why you wouldn't take the medical exam? You figured somebody'd find out. Bullshit! I take the stupid exam! I was afraid of success, like you said. I needed to get my head on straight. I'll take the exam, do the show, whatever you want. What I want, kid? What I want is for you to see somebody. Who? Who would I see? Quit with the games. Quit with the yelling. Shut up. He should show a little growler, fucking toad. You've been slaving away, coming up with the great new stuff. That was blockbuster material, mister. But what really makes it stand out for me is that it's not really playing with the whole is the dummy possessed angle. It's not going for the spookiness factor. 
It plays with the notion in one scene, but overall we're never really in any doubt that Corky is just a very troubled man. And while Corky may think and even accept that Fats has a mind of his own, we the audience never really think or accept that. For us, it's about watching the sad decline of Corky and watching him struggle with the Fats aspect of his personality. He is very introverted and he's clearly troubled, so Fats is almost like a part of him coming out. So magic gives me that time that I wish I had with the dummy. The time to watch the struggle between the personalities, beginning subtly, but then Fats becomes more and more dominant. And I won't play here because if you have any interest in the movie, then I think you should watch it for yourself. But the standout scene of the film for me is when a concerned Burgess Meredith challenges Corky to not speak as Fats for five minutes. And what follows is a masterclass in subtlety and acting by two acting giants. So the final act of the dummy is a kind of chase scene after Jerry leaves the club after doing his act. And it's here that I think the director Abner Biberman and director of photography George Clemens really come into their own. These outdoor alleyway scenes are so atmospheric and they use the black and white and shadows beautifully. And you'll notice the kind of angles that they start to go for as well when Jerry's mind really starts to become fractured. And in Stuart Stanyard's book, Dimensions Behind the Twilight Zone, he interviewed Cliff Robertson before he passed away. And Stuart Stanyard asks him, during the final sequence, the cameras had a tilted angle on virtually every shot in that chase, which makes for a very eerie sequence. Do you remember anything about film in that sequence and whether that presented any challenges technically? And Cliff Robertson replies, when I saw Abner doing that, I was delighted. I felt, yes, this is right. I didn't feel like some artist who was being self-indulged. I felt, hey, this is great. It's a wild, wild scene. And I think he did a hell of a job. You know, you'd hear grumbling sometimes in those days of a guy who had the courage to do that. You'd hear some old gruff voice somewhere saying, what the hell is he doing? What's he trying to do? Who's he trying to put on? And in many cases, these guys were on the cutting edge and maybe some of the big movie directors looked at some of these shows, those relatively small shows, and picked up on some of the things they were doing and used them in their big films. They may not have admitted it to themselves, but it had an influence. So all of this plays into the genius of this scene in that they are able to kind of stage a chase where Jerry isn't actually being chased by anything. Jerry? Noreen. Oh. Noreen, I was waiting for you. Yeah, that's right. I was waiting for you. The line is, this is so sudden. And in this case, it happens to be sudden. No, I, 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 I was waiting for you because... Because I I, I I want to have a drink with you, Noreen, or or maybe a sandwich or something, you know. No, Noreen, you're you're a good kid, and and, and I've always thought you were a good kid, and I I, I I've always wanted to maybe Jerry, have a drink with you. No, see, honey, let's 
Wait a minute, Marie. No, look. What's the matter with you, Jerry? Well, there's nothing the matter with me. Sick no, I'm not sick. sick. I just want to oh. have a drink with you. I don't you understand? I don't want to be alone. I keep hearing those voices. That Willie oh. is bugging me. Yeah. No, wait a minute. No. That Willie is bugging me. Go. Wait a minute. So is this a literal chase where Willie the dummy is actually after Jerry? Or maybe we can take it as Jerry is just having his breakdown. Things have finally come to a head. Perhaps Frank resigning was the straw that broke the camel's back. So in the end, at the climax of the chase, when Jerry thinks he's destroying Willie, he's actually destroying Goofy Goggles. And when he next takes the stage, it's not Jerry who's in control. In one of the Twilight Zone's most chilling shots, it's now Willie who's in control, and Jerry is the dummy. How do you do, folks? How do you do? A funny thing happened to me on the way over to the club tonight. I met this broad. Uh, oh, now, Jerry, you don't mean broad. You mean lady. Oh, look, chum, you just write the jokes and I'll tell them, okay? Well, anyway, I met this broad coming down the street. Uh, it was a broad street. <laughs> now, if you recall, the innocent comment made by Willie on the stage at the opening of the episode was actually not so innocent at all because he says that he would make the better ventriloquist. And in the end, that's what he ends up doing. So the person who plays Willie as the ventriloquist is a gentleman by the name of George Murdoch. Now, Cliff Robertson supplied the dummy's voices, but while they were filming, George Murdoch actually supplied the voice of the dummy for Cliff Robertson to work from. So we have two actual dummies in the episode. We have Willie and then we have the Cliff Robertson dummy at the end. And in the Twilight Zone Companion, Mark Zickery speaks with effects maestro William Tuttle and gets a bit of a story behind that. And he says, that has quite a story connected with it. They wanted a caricature of Robertson. A ventriloquist dummy is a caricature in a sense. It's not human, but they wanted it to look like him so that you could recognize it. They brought in a ventriloquist dummy with the mechanics already in it. And I thought that was a good place to start and then build the caricature over that of Robertson. But I don't happen to be good at caricature in drawing and we had to have something to work from. So I said to the production manager, Ralph Nelson, you need someone to do a caricature. I'm no good at it. I don't have the knack. One of the greatest caricaturists is a man who calls himself Teehee. He was one of the top men at Disney for many years. I first met him years ago. His name was Frank Campbell. He was a fantastic caricaturist. So I told Ralph Nelson all of this and said, well, maybe I can get in touch with him through Disney. And they found him. He was living out in Mojave somewhere. So I called him and I said, Frank, if you do some sketches, then we can work from the sketches. We sent some pictures of Robertson out to him and he made caricatures. And that's what we worked from. So that's the dummy of Cliff Robertson, but then there is Willie himself, who actually is in three Twilight Zone episodes. He's in this one, he's in Caesar and Me, and he's also in the new Twilight Zone episode, The Comedian, which takes place in a comedy club. So it had that nice aspect to it where 
maybe it was the same club and the dummy was just there from years ago or, or something like that but he's actually now part of the collection of david copperfield the famous magician it's been a while since i've seen the dummy but not too long since i've seen the episode that i most closely relate to it which is a passage for trumpet now they are very different obviously a passage for trumpet has this laid back nighttime noir vibe to it while the dummy is going for a creepier disturbing tone but it's the relationship between a performer and their work that i find to be most interesting now i'll give you my take on the episode and then i'll read a couple of bits from douglas brodie's book rod sailing in the twilight zone because i've watched it and had my thoughts about it and then i did my usual sweep of the twilight zone trivia books and I found Douglas Brody's passage about the episode to be quite close to mine, but a little different, and he adds some intriguing depth to it that I'll mention as well. So my take on the dummy was that often an artist or performer will be successful, but after a time they may become quite negative towards certain aspects of their work. The actor who becomes typecast, the band who have that breakout hit, that audiences are constantly asking for, even though they've released much more music since. So for me, it's about that perception by an audience who can no longer separate the artist from their work. The actor who is constantly approached in the street and asked to repeat a certain famous catchphrase. That struggle between the artist who is constantly reminded of that role they had or have to the point where nobody allows them to be themselves anymore and the resentment that comes with it. I think Jerry and Willie are the very embodiment of that, the performer who becomes indivisible from their work and begins to resent it. And in the end, the work becomes more than the man, the image replaces the man. It's representative of the audience who didn't see Sean Connery anymore but they only saw a bond, and that was one of the frustrations he had with the role back in the day. Now Douglas Brody's take is, as with a passage for Trumpet, the dummy reveals itself to be a meditation on alcoholism and the more specific issue of an artistic alcoholic personality. Like Joey Crown, Jerry Etherson drinks because he fears that his gifts, however considerable, are not great enough to qualify him as one of the best in his field. Like the club owner in Passage for Trumpet, the agent Frank provides the voice of reason, compassion and humanism, trying to help Etherson grasp that all an artistic person need do is the best he can. The popular art form portrayed in each jazz and ventriloquism serves as a metaphor for the art of TV writing. The main character as an alter ego for sailing. Etherson proves a far more fitting substitute for sailing, earning a paycheck and delighting the crowd, even if he cannot enjoy the rewards because he believes that he should stretch himself further. The club might be a representation of the Twilight Zone in comparison to the loftier US Steel Hour and Playhouse 90. 
So that's an interesting take, but another interesting part of Brody's commentary is where he addresses not only his analysis of it, but also the why of it, the cosmic justice angle of it. Jack Klugman's character in Passage for Trumpet was in a similar place, but he got a helping hand from the Twilight Zone, a hand to pull him out of the pit of despair that he was in. So why doesn't Jerry get the same helping hand from the Twilight Zone? He doesn't seem to be a bad guy, but Douglas Brody's take on it is this. Why was Joey Crown spared such a terrible fate? He deserved to be saved by divine intervention because he was one of those people who need and love people. His alcoholism came about because he feared that he might not provide his audiences with high quality music. Such humanism is missing from Jerry Etherson as revealed in his relationship with women. Early on, he bumps into a bevy of showgirls. Each clearly would like to be in a relationship with him. Etherson flirts with them, but he does not acknowledge any of the women as human beings. He winks at each and touches the girls, but they are all mannequins. And then he goes on to mention later on when he needs some help, he approaches one of those girls who ordinarily would have probably been only too happy to help him, but it's the way he approaches her that really stops her from doing that. So take that as your thoughts or not, but it's an interesting take. Now friends of the show and I seem to have developed certain turns of phrase that we use a lot in the podcast now and in the feedback. And one of the things we will often say to rate the show is whether they are lower tier, mid tier or top tier Twilight Zones. So where does the dummy actually sit, apart from on Jerry's knee? Well I would put it on the top tier for a few reasons, it's certainly iconic and Willie the dummy is one of those indelible Twilight Zone images and probably more for this episode than in Caesar and Me. And secondly, I think Cliff Robertson does a great performance in this and I mentioned that earlier on, it certainly is a high point. And when my main criticism is that I wish it was longer, I guess we're not doing too badly at all. And that is the only criticism I really have, it's not impossible to show the kind of mental decline of a person in a show of this length, but as a movie like Magic shows, it is a story that maybe is that bit more effective if it's given time to breathe. But have we answered the question of why the relationship between a ventriloquist and their dummy is one that has so inspired writers and captivated audiences over the years? I think there are a few factors that go into this. Firstly, ventriloquism itself, when done well, is a fascinating art form. The ability of a performer to have two separate and distinct personalities on stage to perform two parts often playfully antagonizing each other can't be understated and you know we can all freeze our lips and talk without moving our mouths to a degree but a good ventriloquist is really taking that to a new level so it's already interesting purely for the fact of what it is and the second thing is that a ventriloquist dummy that isn't being used has that similar creepy quality to a porcelain doll, the staring, vacant, dead eyes, but in a way, 
the ventriloquist's dummy is even worse, because a porcelain doll never moves. But if a dummy doesn't have the performer breathing that life into it, then it seems all the more dead. And perhaps there are remnants of the more folklorish aspects to it, you know, the necromancy, those kind of things that we're still remembering in our collective consciousness. So all you need to do is push any of those things a few degrees towards darkness, blur that line between where the performer ends and where the dummy begins. As Willie says to Jerry at the end, it was always you. So a ventriloquist giving their dummy life is a fascinating thing. And just playing with that notion that perhaps they can put too much of themselves into it, or that perhaps some hidden aspect of them actually comes out in the dummy, is perhaps one of the things that's made us really latch onto these stories over the years. So while ventriloquists may not be quite as popular as they used to be, maybe the knock-on effect of that is that we don't get as many stories like this anymore. But they do happen. But, as the performers who have taken the stage tonight show, if you want to dig further into this particular genre, all you need to do is look to the past. Or perhaps take a visit to one of the more out-of-the-way bistros in the Twilight Zone. <laughs> What's known in the parlance of the times is the old switcheroo. From boss together. to blockhead and a few uneasy lessons. And if you're given to nightclubbing on occasion, check this act. It's called Willie and Jerry. And they generally are booked into some of the clubs along the gray night way, known as the Twilight Zone. Okay, that is our episode today. Now, normally I would go over to listener feedback in submitted for your approval. I'm not going to do that in this episode purely for time reasons. The summer has been a bit busy for me, as you will have seen. There's not been much coming out. Doing the listener feedback does add a bit of time to it. And I'm actually thinking that it might be a good idea to actually separate that out from the show. So maybe get three or four episodes under our belt and then do a listener feedback episode. I'm not too sure about that. I'll have a think about it. But it would certainly be a way of maybe getting the episodes out a bit quicker and then having a little break with the listener feedback episode. So leave that with me. I'll have a think about it. But the main thing I just want to mention briefly is Binghamton 2019, the 60th anniversary of the Twilight Zone. You know, it wasn't that long ago that it seemed to be so far into the future and now it's only a month away. And I can't believe it's here already. I'm excited. I can't wait to go. I can't wait to walk around in Binghamton and just see what it's like and meet all of the Twilight Zone authors who are going to be there but most of all speaking to some of the Twilight Zone listeners who I've been speaking to over the years. Now, you know, I did think, what, what can I do while I'm there? Something a bit special to kind of give people a bit of a keepsake, if you like. Now, I did think about doing something on a CD or a tape or a USB stick, some kind of reading or story or special episode, but... Of course, I am traveling over from England to Binghamton, so if I record a load of CDs or something, I've then got to take them over uh, with me, and I'm traveling quite light. So what I've decided to do, I have had 100 cards printed 
And on those cards, there is the Twilight Zone podcast artwork done by the fabulous Rich Black, and also a web address, a link, where if I give you one of these cards, then you can download a special Twilight Zone podcast. Now, I put it out on Patreon. I did a little vote for a couple of things. What should that recording be? I put it to a vote, and quite decisively, the vote seems to have gone in favour of doing a brand new recording, a brand new episode of the Twilight Zone podcast, looking at where is everybody. Because, if you recall, way back in 2010 when I started the show, it was a very different beast than it is now, you know, I couldn't present the show as well as I do now, the editing wasn't as good, the sound quality wasn't as good, the use of clips and music wasn't as good, and it's developed over the years, but part of me really wants to go back and redo those episodes. Now, you know, it's the thing with anyone doing something creative. After a while, you're probably never going to be happy with it, but I do think I could do those shows much better now but i can't do them all but what i will do for the 60th anniversary of the twilight zone i'm going to do a brand new version of where is everybody what if i started the twilight zone podcast today with the equipment and the knowledge and the research material that i have now what would happen if i started the twilight zone podcast now and i think that'll be an interesting exercise i'm not going to listen to what i did back then I'm just going to do it fresh. So if you meet me in Binghamton and I give you one of these cards, then it will have a link on it so you can download that special episode. So I understand not everyone can go to Binghamton. It's a very expensive trip and so on. Those people will get that card as a little keepsake and get to hear that episode first. Now, sometime down the line, maybe a month or two later, I'm then going to put that show on Patreon, so the people who have actually helped pay for my trip to Binghamton can also enjoy that episode too. So if you want to get it, I will give you the heads up when it's going to go on Patreon, and it'll be there for people to download as well. But, you know, I always appreciate new patrons, and I want to thank the new patrons who have come on board. I will thank you by name when I do that new Uh, either next episode or a listener feedback show whichever one I decide to do because I just wanted to get this one out really because it had been a while so now speaking of Binghamton obviously there's going to be quite a few of us there and I honestly don't know what it's going to be like when we get there in terms of what's going on I imagine that it's it's not a huge group of people obviously maybe a, a couple of hundred or something so whatever's going on i think people will probably mainly be together but for us the twilight zone podcast friends i think we need a way to maybe stay in touch you know find out where each other's going to be that kind of thing now you know you could use twitter for something like that or facebook I actually don't use Facebook that much. I have a private little account for people who I work with, you know, family and that kind of thing, which generally stays that way. I am on Twitter, but to be honest, I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with Twitter. I love that it gets me to connect with you, the listeners, but I hate the thing itself these days. It seems to be just a place where the human race goes to spread its anger, you know what I mean? So... 
five minutes on Twitter, you come off more stressed than, than when you went on. So I keep the account going because sometimes, you know, people do get in touch with me that way and certain opportunities present themselves through Twitter. But to be honest, I try and spend as little time as I can on it because of all that other noise that comes with it. But I've actually come across a new app recently called FlickChat. Now, if you go to the app store on whatever phone you use and look up FlickChat, then I have a Twilight Zone podcast group on there. And what it is, it's a it's a nifty little app. It's kind of, you can use it to actually listen to the podcast, but then there is also a kind of, almost like a forum. Um, it's like a combination of a forum and a messaging service. And it really is quite cool. Now, if you go to flick that's f-l-i-c-k dot group slash twilight zone then there is a twilight zone podcast group there and i'll put that link in the show notes so you can go directly to it now in that i've set up a binghamton thread so if you are going to binghamton then that is going to be a really good way for us all to kind of stay in touch with each other you go into that room say hey i'm going to be at this place i'm going to be at that place anyone free or if you take any cool photographs you know whatever i think it's pretty cool and it's a good way to stay in touch with the twilight zone podcast audience you know i tried the reddit and that kind of thing i don't really think it suits me but this is quite instant it's closed off from all that twitter noise um and i think it's going to be a really good way to kind of stay in touch with people both in binghamton and outside of that so the group is flick.group slash twilight zone and if you go there then it's going to be a really cool way to stay in touch and you can even listen to the podcast through it as well so why don't you sign up for flick and hopefully i will see you there now the next episode may be an interview i'm not too sure yet we'll see how that goes but Hopefully I will get another regular episode out before Binghamton because I want to do, you know, quite a bit of Binghamton coverage. We'll play that by ear. So let's go over to Rod Serling to find out what's coming up next. And now, Mr. Serling. Next week, through the good offices of Mr. Richard Matheson, we tell you a story of a young man's fancy, which is kind of a euphemistic description of a mortal combat between the living and the dead, between the present and the past, between Miss Phyllis Thaxter and Mr. Alex Nicholl, the battleground is this old house, and its front door will be open to you next week on The Twilight Zone. Everybody's friends. Remember, only you can prevent forest fires.